Welcome back to To The Point, brought to you by the Wilson Center's Latin American program. I'm Cindy Arnson, your host for this episode. And our guest for today is Michael Penfold, who joins us from Caracas, Venezuela. Michael is a professor at IESA, which is Venezuela's premier public policy and business school. He's also a global fellow of the Latin American program. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Now, let's get to the point. Michael, first question. Uh, the policy of the international community uh, from the Trump administration to the Lima Group in Latin America to the European Union has emphasized free and democratic elections as the way to resolve this multifaceted crisis in Venezuela, economic, political, humanitarian. But just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court pro-regime um, appointed a new National Electoral Council, which made it even more biased toward the ruling party. And then the Supreme Court simply replaced the leadership of the three main opposition parties after having banned one of them altogether. So what does that portend, what does that hold for the National Assembly elections that are scheduled to take place later this year? And despite all of this international pressure, isn't the government becoming even more authoritarian? Well, thank you, Cindy, for the introduction. And, and it's clear that um, Venezuela today is more distant um, from democratic transition than it was 18 months ago when uh, Juan Guaidó was declared by the National Assembly, which is basically the only democratic institution left in the country was declared interim president. So it's not surprising. The, the reality is that the National Assembly a constitutional mandate is coming to an end in December this year. Under democratic circumstances, there should be free and fair elections to, to elect that the, the assembly as well as, as a president. Um, but that's not happening. So the, the Supreme Court, what they just did, was basically try to divide um, the opposition by taking the control of these parties away from its natural leaders, banning one of the, of the parties, which is uh, Guaidó's own party, and also making sure that by the time the new a National Assembly is elected under, under these very dire electoral conditions, there is a new loyal opposition emerging. And uh, basically, Maduro's um, goal is to remove um, Guaido's leadership. Let's talk a little bit about the United States. U.S. policy has long centered on a series of very punishing sanctions, individual sanctions, financial sanctions, sanctions on the oil sector, and then on those who trade with Venezuela, the so-called secondary sanctions, as a way of essentially forcing the regime to its knees. Um, the Venezuelan economy has been collapsing for a long time due to issues of corruption and gross mismanagement, as well as the sanctions. So can you talk a little bit about what the real results of the sanctions have been, both in political and economic terms? As you just have described, I mean, Venezuela is subject to many different types of sanctions. And in fact, it's, it's today is as sanctioned as Iran, particularly with these secondary sanctions on the oil trade and the gasoline trade in Venezuela. 
And it's, um, it's also a country that has become internationally isolated. Just to give you an idea, uh, Venezuela today, before the coronavirus, uh, was less connected to Miami than Cuba is today. So it's a very isolated country. It's becoming an economy that is becoming more and more dependent on illegal trade, and particularly on its um, relationship with authoritarian states such as Russia, Iran, or um, Turkey. And the effects of, of these sanctions so far have been very similar to what has happened elsewhere, which is basically that it has made the regime more cohesive. Um, it has also made the regime more dependent on, on military support. And it has made the regime more dependent on an illegal economy. I think that uh, U.S. goal, really, with, with these sanctions at the end is, is, is to promote regime change, to to have the military uh, break up um, and, and support a, a democratic transition in Venezuela. But so far, it has failed to do so. That doesn't mean it has not had a tremendous effect. I think the regime understands perfectly that on the long term, its ability to sustain itself under these dire economic circumstances is going to be very difficult. Um, however, it is uncertain to me that in the short term, the sanctions are going to have that kind of expected uh, results. And in fact, the U.S. has been very reluctant to move away from them and, and try to pursue other types of incentives that are probably more conducive to provide guarantees um, to, the, to the Chavista elite. Instead, it, it now engaged in not only enacting sanctions, but enacting unsealed indictments, both against the ruling elite and the military elite. You just mentioned the armed forces, and it's important to note that the armed forces have stood by Nicolas Maduro. Um, this has refuted all of these assumptions that the pressure would cause divisions um, and, and cause them to flip. Why has that been the case? And what, if anything, could make things change? The armed forces in Venezuela has historically been a very important player, even in both democratic and authoritarian periods throughout our history. Even, you know, when you go back, there's no, no political change in Venezuela has happened without their consent. So, so they're definitely a key player. Um, why do they remain loyal to, to the Chavista elite? And why have they been reluctant to promote um, the kind of transition that the U.S. and, and the Guaido political coalition in Venezuela is trying to promote? I think there's several reasons. First of all, I think they fear change in the sense that they are not going to pursue that kind of change in, in the political landscape without gaining the kind of guarantees both from the political elite and by the National Assembly, and also by the U.S. in terms of some accusations um, that have been made against them, particularly in terms of corruption and even um, drug trading. So there's, there's that big fear. Secondly, they're big winners under the current circumstances. Um, they control many different sectors, including the oil and mining sector in Venezuela. They control the import and export activities in the country, and particularly the costume sector. So they're not just uh, an army, it's an important corporate actor. And in addition to that, they have enormous presence within the administration in terms of their presence in the, in the cabinet, in terms of their presence running state-owned enterprises. And therefore, it, I don't see any kind of change in Venezuela without their support.
But in order for them to be persuaded, you need to activate incentives, not only by sanctioning or carrying a, a big stick, but, but you need to start providing guarantees. You need to start providing, you know, what fiscal compensation they're going to receive once, you know, that change happens, just like happened in, in, in Chile, for example, in the copper sector after Pinochet left power and the democratic transition started in Chile. You know, these kinds of, of agreements um, have not been on the table yet. And my perception is that until these agreements are not there, I don't think uh, that the armed forces is going to accept that kind of uh, democratic transition. In addition, I think, um, just to make my last point regarding the armed forces, is that they fear a U.S. or an internationally engineered um, political transition in Venezuela. And they have good reasons to fear it. Um, first of all, it's an army that is very pride of its own legacy and history, but it's, it's also, they have a lot of interest and at hands and they want the institutions and their interests to, to survive. So if there's a, a political change that where, where the US or any other international factor has a big hand, they, they fear that. In addition, today, they're under surveillance by the Cuban forces and the Cuban intelligence. So there are many different reasons why this has not happened yet in Venezuela. Critics of the Trump administration's very hardline approach to Venezuela, critics like the European Union, um, the government of Norway, have advocated for political negotiations as a path to resolving the Venezuelan crisis. And the State Department, via Elliot Abrams, the special envoy, has also put out its own plan for political negotiations. Are these negotiations viable? And what might need to change? in order for a negotiated settlement to be reached? I'm very much for a negotiated solution because as I said, without a negotiation, there's no way you can provide the kind of guarantees that is gonna give a political support that political change in Venezuela. But those negotiations have failed many times and they failed for good reasons. I think one is that the parties have not paid any cost for entering into those talks. So there's no major a concession in terms of confidence building measures that have helped it to build the kind of goodwill and commitment to, to the talks. And uh, secondly, I think that the international lining up of port for the talks has not been very strong. For example, with the Norway talks um, that took place in Barbados under the Norway's foreign office uh, mediation, were not very much supported by the U.S. I mean, the U.S. allowed uh, the talks to take place, but um, they were kind of skeptical of the ability of the Norwegians to get Maduro um, to, to, to grant major concessions, and particularly stepping down out of power. And therefore, it's not easy. The incentives are not there. In order for those incentives to emerge, you need to line up the U.S., with China, with Russia, with Colombia, with Cuba, and all of them sitting on the same table. Because I'm not saying that Venezuela is a proxy war, it isn't, but, but it's, it's, it's a situation in where all of these countries, in many ways, are invested in this, in this political conflict, playing out each other um, the way it has. But the cost of this has been a major humanitarian crisis, um, never seen before in the Western Hemisphere. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. For a full discussion of Venezuela's authoritarian crisis and the U.S. policy response, I invite you to listen to the latest episode of the Wilson Center's America's 360 podcast. 
There, experts from the Americas discuss the vanishing prospects for fair elections in Venezuela, the wisdom of direct engagement with the regime, and the influence of electoral politics on U.S. policy toward Venezuela. This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For more on this subject, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org. Thanks for listening.